This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Siobhan Darlington, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, it's going to be super interesting. Uh, it's middle of winter time. Uh, I know for whatever reason, winter tends to get people thinking about cougars. Uh, probably you're thinking about them all, all year round. I know for hunters, it's like, you know, the houndsmen and stuff like that. They like to start, it, you know, it's, it's the season uh, for it. So, so it's, uh, it's going to be exciting to dig in and learn, learn what's going on. So are you out in the field doing stuff now? Yeah, good question. So actually here in Kelowna, it's been raining and we haven't had much snow lately. So it's been limiting for us going to pursue collaring opportunities. Uh, so we need lots of snow to go out on the snowmobiles and uh, chase cougars and put collars out. So we actually have an inventory session planned for December and we had to postpone it and potentially even cancel it. Um, going out to biopsy sample as many cougars as we can in one of our three study areas with the government this uh, winter. And so one of the sessions was supposed to be this coming weekend and we have no snow. So unfortunately we can't go out. So it's uh, a hindrance at the moment. And even the ski hill nearby uh, is delaying their opening season because there's not enough snow right now. Yeah. Well, that's, that's kind of why I asked that because like, we're just, <laughs> we're actually in one of your study areas, as you know, in the East Kootenai region of uh, southeastern BC, and uh, it has been like pouring rain for the last last several days. We got some really beautiful snows, like right at the start of December, and and it would have been just perfect for tracking and all that. And now it's just a it's just a sloppy, icy mess out there. So I was yeah. wondering if that would if that would affect you. Not that the Okanagan gets tons of snow, but it's pretty good a little higher up out of the valley bottom usually, isn't it? Yeah. I would say so. I mean, this is the latest, I think, we've been able to go out um, for each year of the study. So usually by mid-November, um, we can start going out and collaring cougars. And by the first week of December, we're golden usually. This is prime time for us. This is when we're most successful for the number of days we go out to find a cougar track. Um, when we can still drive a truck around without snowmobiles and find tracks on the road. And there's just a skip of snow um, that's really optimal conditions for collaring opportunity. So, uh, yeah, we're disappointed that we can't do that work right now. And, uh, I did go out last week to tag some, uh, cougar kittens and I was debating whether or not we needed snowmobiles because there's snow last week, it was high up and down below there was nothing. So we ended up driving a truck and trailer and snowmobiles way up high on the plateau in the area we were working in. And we did need the snowmobiles, but not till the very, very top. 
Um, oh, geez, so, geez. Yeah. And then I'm pretty sure that snow is gone now. So <laughs> yeah, I, I bet it like, is. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you said the ski hills delaying is opening, then uh, of course yeah. anything higher up and, and that's usually a pretty good ski hill. Like it's a lot of snow there to, at Kelowna. So that's, that's unfortunate, but um, hey, we're looking forward to getting into the topic and your research and finding out what's going on. Hey, everybody, it's Mark Hall, your host. And it's Curtis Hall, the co-host. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by J. Martin Taxidermy in Kelowna, BC. Yeah, cool. <laughs> when you want to remember a once-in-a-lifetime hunting trip or even your first buck in a cool and unique way, J. Martin Taxidermy is the place to go. This family-run taxidermy shop provides top-notch craftsmanship when it comes to all things taxidermy. They'll help create a stunning display that'll spark great hunting and hopefully conservation discussions with your friends and family. So if you're looking to get something preserved, memory-preserved, an animal, go ahead and get a hold of J. Martin Taxidermy and let them do the do the hard work for you it's easy to hang it on the wall but yeah as always super grateful for jesse and his family j martin taxidermy for their continuing support of what we do here at the hunter conservationist yeah absolutely uh, it's kind of cool it's like that's our title sponsor and yourself are located in the same place siobhan you are a phd candidate at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan campus in, in Kelowna. And yes, that's you, right. You, you must know this person. Uh, maybe you've heard of him before, um, Dr. Adam Ford. I don't know if you've <laughs> run across that name before. Um, oh, a couple of times. Oh, a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> I, he, was, he was on the podcast like once, maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, uh, he's highly controversial guy like just (laughs) yeah we had to do a lot of editing he says really controversial things and stuff so uh no it's uh pretty cool he'll he'll be listening to this one for sure um he he always he always does he's a big big follower so uh he's probably very familiar with the work you're doing on uh or working (laughs) on uh, especially because your cougars are eating his mule deer that he's collaring for the other study. So that's. Yeah, absolutely. That's- yeah. Adam is one of my PhD advisors, as well as Dr. Karen Hodges, who is a fire ecologist uh, working with wildlife as well here at UBCO. So oh, yeah, cool. I've got two people. Adam is one of them for sure. Heavily yeah. involved in the cougar work. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So you are leading the Southern BC Cougar Project. Um, we'll let folks know where to find some information and stuff on it at, at the end of the podcast. Um, tell us tell us how you started this. Like, how did you fall into this? Why did, how did, how did it all come about that you ended up on this project? Well, how much time do we have here? I have quite the story. Um, So yeah, this project was initiated really by my colleague, TJ Goliath. He works for the um, 
well, the ministry all just changed, but he works with wildlife um, in Penticton. And he brought the idea of studying cougar populations in tandem with the Sim Deer Project that Adam Ford is leading with Chloe Wright and Sam Foster. So they're looking at mule deer populations in the Okanagan and understanding what's killing mule deer, um, what are the different sources of mortality, and one of the important ones that came up was cougars. So TJ approached Adam and Dr. Hodges as well about initiating a study that could occur at the same time in the same places. Um, so fortunately for me, it worked out pretty well. So I had finished my master's at UVic and I studied white-tailed deer populations in Alberta around the Conklin area and looking at their use of the oil and gas landscape, like seismic lines and that sort of thing. And then I was working out in Hinton um, for FRI research on caribou and grizzly bear program, and as well as well as collaring whitetails. So we were trapping whitetails in clover traps, and we were getting cougars coming in to our deer traps on our trail cameras. And one of the days I went and checked out the trap, and there were cat paw prints all inside our traps, like everywhere. And they were smoking fresh. So I thought, okay, this is pretty interesting. There's cat tracks all inside the deer traps that we left open. Anyway, I've got a trail camera there. It's like minus 40 in Hinton in the winter, right? It's pretty cold. And the lock is frozen on this trail cam. We've got some fiddling with the trail camera. My field partner is like out of sight somewhere else. So it's just me in front of the trap. And I'm trying to get the camera open while this is happening. A coyote runs past me chasing a deer like right in front of me while I'm doing this. I'm like, oh my God, okay, what's happening? Then I get the trail camera enclosure open and look at the photos. And there were two cougar sub-adults that were there right as I walked up. So there were photos of them like 30 seconds before I came up to check the traps. So I figure those cats are probably watching me somewhere right now um, nearby. Anyway, that really sparked a fascination for me working with deer to look at their predator of cougars um, in Alberta. But then I saw this PhD got posted in British Columbia, where I was living after that anyway. Um, so it all worked out really well that I could pursue my passion <laughs> of studying deer and the things that kill them. So um, even though I do work with cougars, I work mostly with dead deer, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> So most animals I work with are not alive, they're eaten, um, but really building on the work I did on my master's and uh, taking it to the next level, looking at the predators that are consuming them. So yeah, that's really cool. how I got involved. Yeah. And uh, applied to the PhD and here I am. So, but yeah, this study was really initiated by my colleague to begin with. And then I came on board. So we've been a pretty tight uh, team this whole time and both of us really heavily invested <laughs> in doing this work for sure. Oh, exciting. Exciting. That's yeah, quite this, quite the story. <laughs> yeah. I almost ended up as part of a cougar diet. So <laughs> I yeah, decided exactly. to study them and see what their diet <laughs> actually was. So, <laughs> um, so what are the formal um, objectives of the Cougar Research Project? Like what questions are you t trying to answer? Yeah, I would say we have about four main objectives for this project. The first one is to really collect baseline cougar population data. So the last major cougar study done in British Columbia was nearly 20 years ago. It was conducted by Hugh Robinson. He was collaring cougars in the trail region of BC. And some of his cougars went into Idaho and Washington. So he sort of did this 
multi-province state PhD and did a lot of work on their ecology. But there have only been a couple of other cougar studies since then um, that were really minor, like only a handful of collars put out, not a lot of analyses done on different aspects of their behavior and diet and that sort of thing. So we really wanted to get at, you know, how many cougars do we think we have in our study areas to begin with? Because we don't really know that. A lot of the estimates that the province has for cougar populations is based on hunter harvest data and conflict cougars, but that's not a representation of all the cougars in the wild. Um, So we don't have a good sense of numbers, I would say. Um, So we can definitely improve on that. And then the demographic structure of the population. So what is the age class structure of the cougars here? What is reproductive success? We have um, in neighboring Alberta, there's an ongoing cougar study. I think that's eight or nine years old. Um, Paul and Delaney Frame lead that. They're biologists for the government there. And so they've done a lot of work on reproduction for cougars there. So we don't really have a lot of that data in BC. So we wanted to look at that too and see what is recruitment in the population. Like how many kittens are born? How, what are they dying from? Um, all these different things around the demographics of the population. So that's one of them, uh, main objectives. And then the other ones are more, a little bit more theoretical, but still applied um, in terms of management. So the second one is to understand how they're using the landscape. So we know that for mule deer, you know, we're interested in looking at how mule deer are using burns and whether burns are good for deer or not and how they respond to different ages of cup blocks and, you know, deforestation on the landscape. There's a lot of that in the Okanagan. Um, But we don't really know how cougars respond to those things either. So to understand how their main predator is also using the landscape to potentially be more efficient in hunting. Uh, It doesn't limit their population in any way to have so much habitat disturbance or is it beneficial? We don't know that. Um, So really getting at the habitat that they use and the the habitat that they need. Um, So that's one of our questions as well uh, in terms of broadly how they use the landscape. And then another one too is understanding their diet. So not just the animals that they're consuming. We, we are interested to know how many mule deer they eat relative to other prey and what the proportions are for each individual cougar. If it's a seasonal change in diet that we see because the mule deer in our system are 75% migratory. So most of them are moving in and out of the system seasonally. So we might see cougars either following where mule deer go or do they just shift diet because mule deer are leaving winter range and now they have to eat something else. So questions around their diet composition over time. Uh, And then also where they're killing those animals. So mainly the large ungulates is the focus for where they're killing prey, because it's really hard to pinpoint when a cougar eats a snowshoe hare or a beaver or something small, um, even with the best available technology. So what we can do is see where cougars are killing mule deer versus whitetail, elk and moose, and see what kind of habitat they're killing those animals in. Do we see mule deer more vulnerable to cougar predation, for instance, um, in cup blocks that are recently cut versus moose that are in different habitats? So there's some aspects of the environment that facilitate predation uh, of certain prey. So that's what we're also interested in is comparing where the mule deer are getting killed by cougars to where whitetails, elk and moose are getting killed by cougars on the landscape. Um, so we did a lot of that work too. It's a lot of uh, things that cougars eat <laughs> involved in a lot of our questions for sure. Oh, um, wow. Cool. I, I remember yeah. a few years ago following, uh, <clears throat> I, I think I was out taking down a, 
a deer stand uh, late in in December, and a, a cat had walked like right underneath my deer stand. So I'm like, I had to follow this thing and I'll see if I can catch up with it or what it's up to or whatever. And and then it turned out there were two. Um, so I kind of think they were like sub adult siblings. Um, away from mom, but still, still hanging out together. And, uh, it was very, cause there was snow at the time. It was actually very clear to, uh, see from their behavior. They were looking for snowshoe hares. Mm-hmm. Like they were walking around. It's like everywhere where a snowshoe hare would be like under a log or an <laughs> overhanging or under a clump of trees. They were just, uh, you see lynx and bobcat tracks they are doing exactly the same thing. And that's what these two cats were doing. They were just weaving in and out in every little hidey hole where there could be a snowshoe hare. You know, it was, it was, they were sticking their nose in looking. So I just thought that was kind of interesting just to fly, followed them for about an hour. And it's like, that's all they did the whole, whole time they were going along there looking for snowshoe hare. So it was, it's kind of a yeah. neat way to learn, learn about an animal like that. So. Yeah, and I would say too, that's how a lot of cougar studies used to be conducted before GPS collaring. So before you could collar a cougar and get fixes on your phone every two hours, you know, like I can follow the cougars remotely. Um, Back in the day, there was a study on, I think it was on Vancouver Island, but I can't remember the researcher's name, but they did a master's tracking cougars in the snow to see what they were eating and what habitat they were using with BHF. And they would just find cougar tracks as well and just follow them out and see what they were eating and find prey remains just hiking out the tracks. So you're just hiking forever. Sometimes you're hiking forever between kills. Um, So it was a lot. Like this study that was done probably, I think it was the late 90s that did this. Um, Yeah, it would have been very field intensive every day going out radio tracking cougars and following the tracks to find out what they were doing. Yeah, Um, yeah. That's cool. (laughs) I mean, yeah. A few episodes ago when we had Dr. Bruce McClellan on, he he talked about that, Curtis. Remember where he was like, you know, he's VHF and he's like going down in the river bottom looking for a grizzly bear. And finally he's like, oh, he's just around the corner here, like maybe 50 to 100 yards. And he goes, I'm not interested in seeing him. I want to know what he's been up to since the last time I checked on him. So he turned and went the other direction and was following his track, seeing what he was up to over the course course of the day. And it was just kind of that. I just, I thought that was so cool. It was just the nuance of the science where where he was old school, where he's literally track for track, following his study animals. And you know, Bruce was the type. It's like, oh, he was eating on this plant. I wonder what it is. And then he'd be like, I wonder what this tastes like. And then he'd be chewing on the plant as well, right? <laughs> to see what it tasted like. So, um, no, that's 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 cool. So. So obviously like you're in the middle of this project and you're just collecting data and downloading stuff. Um, Are you kind of like doing mini analysis and kind of like trying to glean some things that are, that are happening out there? Like, you know, not obviously not like this is our exact conclusion, but going, Oh, there seems to be this or seems to be kind of that. Uh, Are you, is that what you do in a big project like this? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'm almost uh, four years into the project. So at this point, I have pretty much all the data that I need for my PhD. And I have been working on pretty much just computer time and analysis. We're still maintaining some cats collared and visiting dens because it's so hard to get that data. We are going to continue doing it. 
um, as long as we can, because it's important to build a good data set for reproduction and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, I have a pretty good sense of what I think is going on anyways. And some of my research questions have evolved over time because when I was new to the project and we were developing ideas, we didn't have a strong sense of what to expect. But after going out and investigating, you know, I think we've been to 1,400 potential kills and documented nearly a 1,000 things that cougars have been eating on the study. So it gives you a really good idea being out in the field for so long and investigating these things what factors we didn't think of before um, actually might matter a lot um, in the research. Oh, okay. and Interesting. One example, yeah, one example I can think of is that, you know, I thought, okay, I'm interested in cup locks because they're important to deer. Like that's pretty basic, you know, and then going out and investigating these kills, finding that in the summertime, the cougars are moving into cup locks significantly more than in the winter. So we see a big shift into deforested areas a certain time of year. And that's where the deer are. That's where the deer give birth as well. And one thing that we noticed visiting kill sites is that a lot of the kills that we were finding, not just deer, but moose too, like all the ungulates, a lot of them were on the edges of cup blocks in the deadfall that falls down from Winthrow. So when you have a fresh cup block and that land is cleared and leveled and you've got this forest edge, it's vulnerable to Winthrow. So when you're hiking around the edges of those things, there's tons of logs on the ground, fallen debris everywhere. And we would often find remains of fawns and adults, um, you name it, among all of this debris. So all of this woody debris on the edges. Um, so it makes me think, okay, these cougars are smart. You know, they can easily climb over this kind of stuff. It's much harder for a small deer to do that, to escape predation. Um, so that could be a really important thing to look at for our research is what makes a cup lock bad for being killed by a cougar? Hey, maybe it's the fact that for a solid 50 meters into the forest, it's just dead fallen trees everywhere. And that's also where cougars are giving birth too, is in fallen vegetation. Oh, okay. Um, so okay. cougars are really using this, this feature, not just to protect their young and give birth there, but also to hunt. Um, so that's one of the things I would say is something that stood out a lot doing this work on the ground that I wouldn't have noticed just on the computer doing GIS stuff. It's all very coarse scale. Um, but when you're out there in person, you can really see the kind of features that might make those larger landscape, you know, patterns um, important in these questions. So yeah, that was something that really stood out. <laughs> interesting. That's interesting. It, when you were saying that, it just it completely brought back a memory of a big, big tomcat I saw that was on a bull elk, uh, and this was in the fall. And when I first came across it, like he scared, he, he ran off, but he did come back, and I did encounter uh, the cat again. And he drugged this bull elk out of the cut block, way off in into the trees. And so I was kind of thinking, it's like are they like grizzly bears don't like to like be in the open. Lots of predators don't like mm -hmm. to be in the open and be seen. So it's like whether they're trying to drag these things back into that, into the dense forest. And, and uh, uh, it's, it's cool that you're seeing these little, little things and able to, uh, to sort of adjust your research and, and tweak it as you go is kind of a really exciting 
exciting part of it rather than just going somebody else. I recommend somebody else should investigate this. So. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's kind of a unique, I mean, not that there's not cup locks other places, but not very many studies of cougars. Um, are occur in places like this. Yeah, so, yeah. like for example, you know, in the Yellowstone network, there's a lot of research done. I have the Yellowstone Cougar book; it's excellent. Anyone's fascinated with cougar research, really amazing study. But it's a protected area, so there's not a lot of landscape disturbance like we have in British Columbia. So it's brings a lot of value of our work doing it in an area that's heavily developed. We have a lot of agriculture here in the Okanagan too. Um, lots of people, towns. So it really is a different system than some of these other places where this type of work has been done before. Um, so we are right. fortunate that it's kind of a little bit new in a sense um, that we can answer some of these questions and look at those features. Then, you know, the cup locks are all over British Columbia. So we can make some inferences too um, of how the system might work in other places in the province as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the whole Southern part of the province, right? Where there's cougars, like the island, the lower coast, the Okanagan, and of course the, the Kootenai region where we are. No, that's, that's, that's cool. So maybe, maybe unfold a bit more of what you're seeing. So you've been, you've been collaring adults, you've been collaring kittens, uh, you've been kill site investigating, looking at diets. Um, so what have you been gleaning f- you know, from your analysis that ties back to those kind of main research questions. Yeah. So one clarification, we unfortunately are not collaring the kittens. Um, yeah, it's tricky because they grow so quickly. You need special okay, collars. Okay. And, but we are tagging them within the ear. So we put an ear tag on the kittens and then we put trail cameras up at the mother's kills to monitor over time whether they're still with her or not. Because after two months, they travel with the mother to kills. So if they're not with mom anymore for a very long time on any kills, we have a good sense that they didn't make it. Um, oh, it's pretty coarse. So it's, uh, there's some work in Utah done collaring kittens and linking them to the mother's collar to try to get at that question. It's just so hard with even neonate deer. It's the same thing. It's really tricky to evaluate mortality and survival um, because sometimes they get eaten by something and you cannot tell what it was. Um, But we've been documenting predation. When we go to these kill sites, sometimes um, we find remains of kittens, for instance. Um, So we do learn a lot to contribute to mortality sources of the young and adults. So we do get a mortality signal too when the adults die as well. And we've had some natural causes like cougars killing other cougars. We had a female presumably killed by another female, which is pretty rare. Because normally females are killed by males, um, if at all. But we had one of our caller females who monitored for a while, had a mortality signal, and then our technicians investigated it and found that that cougar was consumed and cached uh, by another cougar. And then I had the skull, so I cleaned the skull, which is a hobby my mom wishes I didn't do. Um, (laughs) So cleaned the skull and found the puncture wounds in the back of this cougar skull and took, I have a tom skull and a adult female skull, and looked at the measurements of the holes, the puncture wounds, and they were consistent with an adult female. A male has a way bigger jaw. Um, So it was either a really immature male that was just around the same size as a female, um, or it was a female, which is what I'm leaning towards, because not long after our collar female was consumed by another cat, we collared another female 
close by and she was all beaten up. So we had colored this other female and she had scratch marks like she'd been in a fight. And then we monitored that female and we're still monitoring her today. And this was a couple of years ago. And she basically assumed the territory of that female who died. Um, oh, so we're, we have some confidence. We don't have DNA evidence to prove it, but some confidence that, that she may have been the one that killed this other female, um, which is pretty exciting because there's not a lot of that documented female on female mortality. Um, in yeah. Yeah, so that was cool. We detected that before we even had a male kill one of our, our cougars, which happened the year after. Um, a big tom killed one of our younger males. Okay, um, okay. Yeah, yeah. You, you, hear, you hear about that, um, you know, that scenario of the big the big males kind of being pretty territorial and and um, pretty pretty hard on, on sub-adult cats. But, I mean, little things like that kind of like, I don't know, as a researcher, does it just start to fire all these other questions in future research projects about like what demographic in the population creates, you know, female on female competition for territories? Is is it when there's lots of females or only a few females and all these things start to come to mind, I bet? Yeah, for sure. It's definitely something I have no end of questions that I could ask <laughs> all of these data. I have so many questions and my supervisors are saying, okay, hey, lady, you have to finish your PhD at some point. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> try to stay funny. focused. But that type of question, like you say, about female, female mortality and aggression, that's the kind of question that, you know, you really want multiple studies to collaborate together. So that's something that I, you know, I'm networking a lot with other cougar researchers in North America. I'd go to conferences and chat with them and hear their stories because if it's really rare, it's really hard to get data on it. Um, but by collaborating and being open with other researchers in other places, they might say, hey, we also have detected that too. And here are the circumstances around it. And then you can open the door to some future collaborations for sure. So that's something that's always on my radar is all these yep. kinds of questions. And then, hey, who else out there might be picking this up and could we learn something from it? So, um, yeah, it's an exciting position to be in. You know, I have my main objectives and questions that I want to answer, but there's a lot of room for future work too, that we can contribute to. Mm, cool. Now, how much, how much mortality were you seeing in your study animals? Um, you know, the tag kittens and, and the adults, males and, and females, like, is it, is it quite high or quite small or? Uh, for, so it's, We've had many more kitten mortalities than we've had adults. Um, the kittens, okay. um, oftentimes if one kitten dies, it's the whole litter is predated. So what we found with the kittens, I'll start first there. Um, so we'll visit den sites early on about one month after they're born to go ear tag them because they need to be big enough to handle, um, not too big so that they can't squirm out of your hands and run away and, you know, attack you. You have to control them, <laughs> but we put an ear tag in their ear when the ears are big enough and they can wear one. Um, so we do that when they're one month old and sometimes we've gone in looking for cougar kittens and they were already consumed by something. And more often than not, we found evidence of black bears killing them. So we found black bear scat, hair, beds. Um, we found kitten ear tags in black bear beds at the dens. So they were eat they ate the kitten and the ear tags on the ground. Um, so we've had that a number of times. We've also had uh, tom cougars. We think a cougar consumes the kitten. 
And then we've also had uh, just as many predation events where we couldn't tell because they just vanished. So we knew they weren't denning anywhere. The females' behavior completely changed. They den quite a lot in the first two months and that's when the kittens are most vulnerable to being eaten so when we go into a den knowing the female was denning for a long time and there's no sign of any kittens we're pretty confident that they were eaten by something we can't always tell what it was um, so we do our best but we can't always tell and it's the same with the sim deer work as well when neonates are consumed it's often black bears for that too um, and cougars as well but it's mainly black bears and then oftentimes you just cannot tell what consumed the neonate yeah, yeah. Um, so we're collecting data on that and then as the kittens grow older we're also documenting other sources of mortality so um, we documented livestock conflict as being one for cougars that live in the wildland urban interface and are learning to hunt, but they're learning to hunt around unprotected livestock. So we've had a couple of sub-adults that are not collared, but have been recorded by conservation officers as going after unprotected hobby farms. Um, so we have detected that too as a source for the young uh, cougars and not for the adults um, that we have collared. There's a couple that have been into conflict, but not nearly as many. Um, so we've had a couple of two-year-old cougars that were killed by conservation officers because of livestock conflict. And so okay. that's a source of mortality we've documented for adults. And interestingly, so I think we've had 15 cougar adults out of 51 uh, die on the project in the last four years. Um, so we get a handful every year for, and throughout the year for different reasons, right? Some natural. We've had one cougar killed by its prey. And we got kicked by an elk and had a hoof oh, print geez. in its side. Yeah, oh. so we found a cougar that died from that. Um, but uh, we've had just as many cougars die from conflict as harvest in the Okanagan when provincially, I think hunter harvest is about three times the mortality rate of conflict cougars. Um, but here in the Okanagan, they're both the same on our study. And I think that's largely because we have a lot of conflict here. So that's something that we work on with the Wild Safe BC group and conservation officers is to address that source of mortality because it seems to be really high versus the provincial rate um, for cougar. So I think that's because we're in a valley that has a lot of agriculture. There are a lot of hobby farms where we are. Um, it's not the same everywhere in BC, right? So I think we're just in a hot spot for some of these conflicts and the cougars are on mule deer winter range and cougar or Kelowna is kind of built on mule deer range right yeah. so we have a lot yeah. of mule deer in town that cougars come in and they're hunting them there so um yeah so, when you have a mix of people <laughs> so you, you said you had 15 mortalities out of 51 mm -hmm. that's just yeah. the adults <clears throat> yes that's just the adults i think we've had 27 kittens die out of uh i don't know 60 something yeah. okay so that's, well, the kittens, that's getting close to like half of them. So 50% mm -hmm. mortality, yeah. um, that would be in their first year of life. Like 50% would kind of yeah. be the ballpark thing. So half, half of them die in their first year of life. And then the adults, that mortality like is about a third. Then at 15 out of 51, like roughly a Yeah, and a then some of them, them too, um, 
yeah, I think that's only collared cougars. But so the adult data, I'm still we're still collecting this data so I can run survival models for cougar. Yep. So I don't have results for exactly you know what the survival rates are for one year of the study, but that's what I'm working towards right now. Okay. Um, so okay. I have done the kitten analysis, and the kittens are in the first year it's just below fifty percent, okay. um, which yeah. is similar to the study that was done in BC that did look at some cougar kitten work twenty years ago. They had very similar rates back then too. So we really, I don't think we've really changed in terms of the kitten survival rates in BC um, mm-hmm. from the last study to now. They've been pretty much consistent. Um, so yeah, it's, it says a lot though. I mean, our females, some of them give birth every year because they might have lost their litter the previous year. So then they're having a litter right away the next summer. Some of them have had a litter immediately after losing kittens, like three months after they have a litter the same year. Um, wow after losing them. Yeah. And then uh, some of our females has been every two years. So you can, we're, this is something that I'm trying to incorporate in the recruitment analysis is to say, okay, well, how many cougars are being born per female? How many are making it? And then how often are females reproducing um, on average? Um, so that's all part of the, that demographic piece as well. Um, and I would say too, we had our first litter last week in the Kootenai region where you guys are. And that was our very first litter in four years of four kittens. And we've had two females die with four fetuses inside because um, they were pregnant at the time that they died. But none of them had given birth to four. They'd only given birth to three or less. So in Alberta, they have litters of four all the time. Um, so our rate of the number of kittens born is lower here than in Alberta. So that's interesting. Just our very first one, finally, with four. And we'll see if they make it. Um Wow. But our, yeah. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's a lot to look after. Um, it, it's actually kind of interesting that like <clears throat> just slightly under 50%, that seems to be a very common mortality rate for yearlings, like an animal in the first year of life. When you look across species, like white-tailed deer, moose, like, you know, there's a lot, at least that I've seen, it's like, it's about half your, your offspring don't make it to, to their, to their first, you know, first birthday. So it's kind of an interesting to see that with cougars. Yeah, I would say so too. And I mean, if it's, if it sounds depressing hearing 50%, well, I mean, I also have done lots of work with birds and the bird populations oh my are gosh. way lower. I mean, when they give birth, I mean, very few of them make it on their migration and their <clears throat> yep. survival is much lower. Yep. Um, or, sa- or salmon. Yeah, um, exactly. So. <laughs> all right. Um, so maybe, maybe glean a little bit, uh, you know, or share a little bit on the diet, the kill site investigation stuff. What are you learning about? Uh, I was actually surprised. Like you said, I think the, the, the recent newsletter that was out for the project, you'd confirm now like 16 species were in cougar diets in your study areas. Like, so what are you seeing? 
Yeah, so it's mainly um, the way that we locate them, I should say, uh, is a biased approach. So I am using two approaches to look at diet. So the first one is using kill site investigations, and that's using the GPS collar data to see when cougars spend a lot of time in one place. So when they're in one area that, that they're most likely feeding on a carcass, that's when we go in and investigate and see what the carcass is. That also means that carcass is likely something big, so a large ungulate. If they're eating a snowshoe hare, they don't sit for hours and hours eating it. So then we don't detect nearly as many small prey doing kill site investigations because the way the, the data come in and how we can tell it's a kill is because it's a large carcass. Um, so that is a biased approach, but it does help us investigate the four different main ungulates that we're interested in. Um, and I say four, I know we were interested initially in looking at bighorn sheep, but we've had pretty much zero bighorn sheep killed by our cougars. So I was hoping to look at that in the project and we do have cougars that overlap sheep and they've never clustered on one that we've been to. Um, but that being said, um, since some of the sheep are in really rough country, it could be possible that some of the cougars that are harder to access could be eating sheep. Um, so that's partly why I have another method, which is looking at stable isotope analysis, which is using hair from lots of different prey sources, including small prey and bighorn sheep and livestock, all these different things, and looking at the signatures that are in cougar hair and in cougar whiskers. Um, we can tell what a cougar is eating broadly in different prey groups just from hair alone without visiting kill sites. So that's a less biased approach in terms of, you know, us hiking out to finding only moose and deer and that's all, all they're eating. They actually eat a lot of other things. Um, you know, ungulates are not the only thing that they consume. So this other approach helps us mediate some of that and get at some of the other prey that they're eating. So but that literally the is the, you are what yeah. you eat. Like here, yes, science exactly. is now at the point where wow. you can analyze the hair and say, percent wise, it's like, this is what this animal is made up of. <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. And the cool uh. thing too, is that with using whiskers, instead of just hair, um, whiskers grow continuously. So we have, there's not a perfect estimated growth rate out there for cougar whiskers. You'd have to like feed a cougar a specific diet for weeks and measure its whisker every day. Nobody's done that, but they have done it for other large wild cats. So we're using a growth rate from another study, um, but it's pretty good. Um, you know, based on the work that I've done, you can segment a whisker and see through time what they're eating. So you can take a piece from the base of a whisker, compare it to the middle and compare it to the end. You know, you might have a whisker that gives you six months of diet. Um, so it can be really cool to look at seasonal changes just from a single whisker can tell you a lot about what the cougars are eating throughout the year. Um, so that's part of my work is looking at that. And then I also do year round kill sites. So it's all, all seasons trying to look at some of this change over time, um, when mule deer are migrating in and out of the system. Um, but what I can say is that, so we have three study areas, one in Kelowna, down to Soyuz and then one in the Rock Creek to Grand Forks area up to Highway 6 and the other one is south of Cranbrook to the border and we have pretty different prey composition of the four main ungulates between all three so we have mainly it's a highly dominated mule deer system in the west Okanagan so it's that's the main thing they're eating and the second most common one is moose but by a large margin they're consuming mule deer um, but as we move east 
um, as we go, even just across the lake, um, even just around Kelowna too, they start to shift to whitetails. We have far more whitetails in the diet and in the Kettle Valley, it's mainly whitetails that they're consuming. So there's really a transition of mule deer to whitetail in just these two adjacent study areas, which is pretty interesting, um, divided by the lakes, you know, so we see this kind of gradient. And then over in the Cranbrook area, it's really uh, whitetail dominated and elk. So we, a lot of elk consumed by our cougars there, um, very few mule deer and moose over there. So we do see this shift, you know, over space in what is available uh, to them and what they're mainly eating. And we are very fortunate that we have the Sim Deer Project um, is occurring at the same time. For those of you who don't know, the Sim Deer Project has a camera grid looking at the different abundances of different prey species as well as the predators on the landscape in this big grid. So we can use that data to see, well, what are the proportions of those four main ungulates in at least two of our study areas that we have good camera data for? And we can see in my work whether the cougars are eating certain prey species disproportionately to what we would expect. And ultimately, they really eat what's there. So they really are not heavily consuming one prey species that has low availability. They eat very similar uh, proportions to what Sam got on the cameras. So it's really cougars okay. eat what's around. Yeah. So uh, they're not so they're opportunistic in the sense of yeah. like if it's if it's brown and standing there, <clears throat> I'm a cat. I'm gonna. It's caught my got caught me attention. So, I mean, yeah. this is interesting because my whole life I've heard these stories about these cats that are specialists, and I know there was a study that was done around Cranbrook here like decades ago, where they were, the houndsmen were helping the biologists catching collar cougars and these cougars would be like down in the valley bottom in the wintertime. And then the next day they'd be like at seven or 8,000 feet in the Purcell mountains trying to get a mountain goat. <clears throat> and then they, two days later, they'd be back in the valley bottom and, and, you know, and I've heard about, you know, problems with some of the sheep herds where a cat just camps on a sheep herd and it's like just, you know, sort of laying out sheep every, you know, er every week kind of thing. And and I'd always heard this thing about them being specialists and I don't know, you know, is that a real thing? Like when you look around at other studies, you know, does it just make sense that a cat is going to walk by two white-tailed deer that are bedded under a tree and go, no, nah, I'm looking for some sheep over there on that hillside, like, because I'm a sheep kind of, kind of cat, you know, it's. Right. Yeah. I think, um. So from other studies, the documented specialists where cougars are picking one thing very much disproportionately to what is available. Uh, I think in Alberta, they documented a moose specialist is what they called it. It was one cougar on this big study that they said was a moose specialist, um, which might be true. Maybe they do have a certain cougars. I mean, there's a lot of individual variation. That's what I'm learning is there's a lot of different cougars that have different hunting strategies. They eat different things. Not every cougar's the same. Um, so there have been studies documenting, but it's it's really low. So the vast majority are the opportunistic ones that are generalists. Okay. And then a few that might, um, 
you could argue, be specializing on something. And a lot of the studies, too, there's one study done in Cadam and Mine in Alberta looking at consumption of bighorn sheep, which is a really interesting study. And really, it was just that they had two cougars that established a home range overlapping with the mine, which has mainly bighorn sheep on it. So you could you would expect those cougars to consume sheep. That's what they've gotten accustomed to hunting. So it's, I think, too, part of its learning. So that's a certain ungulate that they've gotten really good at killing and is around. Um, so they were finding that, yeah, they studied, I think, seven or eight cougars in the area. Two were killing lots of bighorn sheep. And it's because their territories were basically right over over top of all the sheep. Um and that's a food source that was available and that's where they established yeah, a range. Well, that totally right? makes, so, totally makes sense. Yeah. You know, yeah. If, if, if there's good sheep herds within their home range, then that's, that's what's in their grocery store versus the ones across the Valley that have a bunch of mule deer. What are, what are you, what are some of the other things that you're finding that they're <clears throat> actively consuming? Like, you know, are they, catching and eating coyotes or foxes or like any weird things. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have not had as many cool things as the study North of us. There's a cougar study in the Chilcotin that's found like a black bear, I think a fisher, some really cool animals that I'm very jealous of. We have mostly mule deer, moose, elk, till, And then we've had some snowshoe hare. We've had porcupine, raccoon, beaver, um, but not, again, not nearly as many as they probably are eating, right? Visiting the kills. These are instances where I think I, I only found the porcupine because I think the cougar got injured okay. <laughs> and was hanging okay. around for days. And then I went mm. into the site and I was expecting to see a deer. This cougar's been here a long time and uh, there were quills everywhere. Um, so, I mean, I think they probably eat those things more often than I'm detecting for sure. Um, they have killed a few coyotes. Um, we have one female that's killed quite a few and consumed each one of them. So she's eating them. And then we had mm. another female kill a coyote, but in a defense move. So she was an actively denning female and had young kittens and she ended up killing a coyote not too far from her den and she didn't eat it. So she just left it there, um, killed it, left it, moved on. So I think she was more protecting her young um, and yeah, she didn't even bother eating it. Whereas the other female has consumed a few coyotes um, in addition to deer and things. Hmm. So yeah, we have detected that. No wolves um, at any of the kill sites, unfortunately. We don't have very many wolves in our West Okanagan study area. I know there's some wolves around. We've gotten them on cameras, um, but very few more so in the boundary and in the Kootenays, but not as many as a lot of people think. I think there's a lot of notion that wolves are pushing cougars off kills, which is something we were interested in throwing cameras up on kills. But um, we've had very few cases of wolves coming into cougar kills and we put hundreds of cameras out on carcasses. Um, and then when they did do that, usually it was days after the cougar left. It wasn't right away where they were coming in. But I should say I had one really cool incident um, just on the topic that I'm bringing up. But <laughs> we had one camera up on a, I think it was an elk carcass in the Coonies. And that was a fascinating camera because we had a cougar come in and had made the kill and it was feeding on it. And in the same night, the cougar moved away. A wolf came in and was eating on the elk and then the wolf left a coyote came in 
coyote fed on it. Then the coyote left. Then the cougar came back. Cougar was feeding. Cougar left. Wolf came back. It was just a rotation of these three carnivores on the same carcass in the same night, which I thought was really fascinating because it's something we really don't see that much of. Um, There's very seldomly multiple large carnivores on a carcass at once. Um, So that was a really cool uh, footage that we got back. And I think it was all video, but yeah, it was really neat to see. But that's the only time I've seen a wolf come in while the cougar was there. But the cougar was sort of going off in the distance, letting them feed and then coming back when the coast was clear. Yeah. Okay. Like, so, yeah. So literally just kind of taking turns, doing some shift work and, and they were all probably literally avoiding each other, um, opportunistically coming in. Wow. That's, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, so just shifting a little bit to some, uh, landscape use pattern stuff. I did see in, in your last project update report, um, some really interesting stuff about, um, highways and cougar movement and actually they're seeing some of the same thing with mule deer so maybe maybe give us a little bit of what you're seeing about how cougars reacting to things on on the landscape yeah so this is um in terms of my analysis this is my next chapter that i'm starting in january so i don't have all the answers for how they're using the landscape like i say i have observations for being out and watching the collared cats move into cup walks for example in the summer um around highways we've done some collaborative work with moti ministry of transportation here um they were looking at where cougars are crossing highways and they were interested to know where cougars are crossing. Are they using culverts, uh, overpasses, that sort of thing in our area, because there are a couple of those overpasses or there's at least one on the connector here and multiple culverts. And we did have two male cougars use those culverts. We have pretty good data showing their movement right where the culverts are and they cross the highway. It's a four lane highway with a median and fencing. Um, so we could see that they were crossing under these structures, that those structures are being used by some of the cats. But by and large, our cougars territories are very much um, bounded by major highways. So not main roads like through a town uh, or backcountry roads at all. Those don't seem to have a barrier effect, but large roads do. Uh, a lot of our cougars' territories are completely within. Um, if there's highways all the way around them, they don't cross ever. So they're completely contained. Um, and if they like, do cross... Like in their little islands with a moat of yeah. highways around them. Okay, and that's yes. the whole range. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, I had a cougar that made a really big dispersal movement from the Rock Creek area down to Idaho. And I had, um, it was detected on a trail camera down there. So I had some researchers also interested in highways contact me about it. And they said, we want to know if that cougar's ever crossed Highway 95 down in Idaho. And, you know, I had to say, show them the data. Hey, no, they're not crossing because they really don't cross the big roads. They really are a barrier even down there in the U.S. in their big freeways. So we see the same thing with that cougar that moved down to the U.S. as we do with the cougars here. So that they're really not um, crossing some of these bigger highways like the connector we have a cougar that dispersed towards merit and it just followed the highway because it wouldn't cross um so we do see barriers for sure um 
just observing their movement behavior um, with the satellite imagery and all of this. Uh, but again, so I can't make uh, complete conclusions. I haven't analyzed this data in terms of the response to all the different types of roads, but I can tell for sure that these biggest high, the biggest highways we have um, are limiting their movement for sure. Mm, yeah. Interesting. So future, you know, future work down the road, <clears throat> getting into DNA work um, would be where you would start to be able to say, yes, those highways are starting to be a problem to genetic transfer and stuff over, you know, large areas like the Okanagan Basin itself. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of assumption in the cougar world anyways that there's just enough mixing in populations that there's not too many distinct ones. So when you think of Florida panther, they're pretty genetically isolated from yeah. other cougar populations. They've been on their own for a long time. Um, and even in the Olympic Peninsula in Washington, there's some genetic isolation there too. Um, but it probably happens to a greater extent than we think um, because of barriers to connectivity and in the Okanagan as an example you know we have lots of major highways in all directions and we also have uh, large reservoirs Arrow Lake you know we have the Okanagan lakes that pose a barrier we've had one cougar only cross the valley in Penticton to get to the other side <laughs> out of all the cougars we have collared on either end the only one has ever come across um, wow. and not returned and that same cougar tried to go further east on her dispersal as a young female and she hit arrow lake and followed arrow lake for a very long time and gave up and turned around and came back um mm -hmm. so we knew that arrow lake was a barrier to her movement because she followed it right along the edges and that lake is too large to swim across for a cougar um we do see them um cross about water bodies that are around 500 meters maybe up to a kilometer of freshwater um, but nothing bigger than that so if they come across a large lake or something that's more than a kilometer wide they won't cross it uh, swimming so we do see it where we are there are a lot of different features on the landscape that can limit where they can go um, for sure. And that probably limits cougars from other areas coming into here not just the cougars leaving right yep yep Oh, that's super fascinating. Um, you probably know this story, but um, Patrick Stant from the Fish and Wildlife Office in Cranbrook years ago had collared a cat actually very close to where our house used to be uh, in Jaffrey. And that cat ended up leaving British Columbia, going into Montana, going way down into central Montana, and then up over the uh, the mountains and the passes and was almost on the outskirts of, uh, was it Bozeman or Hel Helena? That it, that it, and I'm just trying to remember it was like 700 kilometers or something like that. And then mm -hmm. it turned around and came back or it got shot, I think on its way back or something in hunting season down in Montana, but just like an epic, <laughs> epic yeah. movement of this one cat. So, um, that, that, that must be super fascinating to like, see that GPS data and go like, oh my gosh, what was it doing? What was it thinking? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've had a couple of pretty big dispersal events, probably not as big as that one, but pretty close. Um, we had a cougar go from the big white area down into Washington, and then she went all the way down to Spokane. 
uh, couldn't cross the city. She tried. And there's a big lake there and a big highway. And we could see her data. She was looking for a place to cross. She was right at the narrowest part of the body of water that's down there. And you could see she was thinking about it. And then she turned around, decided not to, came all the way back into British Columbia in Rossland. And she was there for a bit. And then she went south again and ended up in the Colville National Forest. And that cat ended up dying. She got... Um, think she was she had trace amounts of rodenticide she just died and we didn't have any um sign of what happened to her so there was some poison in her system and she was in an agricultural area but she had this very crazy movement um, for a female so that was really interesting um you just never know what to expect these cougars are always surprising us um they do some really interesting movements they cover ground pretty quickly when they're dispersing too and they'll make kills on their journey along the way um and i would say we've have had now i think cougars disperse in all directions but the most popular direction that they like to go is south so our we've had four or five cougars now go into washington and idaho um, whereas only a couple have gone east or north or west of Kelowna. so i think south maybe is the possibly the easiest place to go because there are the connectors north you know the lakes are east of Kelowna and then you've got another highway if you keep going to the west so maybe just they all get funneled south I'm not sure but um our geography in North America is yeah. very <laughs> geographically northwest right like all of our mountain yeah. ranges or valleys lakes you know, yeah. lakes are long and skinny for the most part in the valleys and run north south. So, I guess yeah. either you either got to like to go up and down and up and down and swim rivers and lakes, or you move north and south. So, that yeah, and that's that's probably would the be case, my right? thinking if I was I was an animal. Yeah. Yeah, and it's unfortunate for me because, I mean, I, it's pretty hard, especially during COVID, I mean, to go do kill sites as soon as they cross the border. I had one female... Um, she has a range that's something like 90% in Canada, in, over in Cranbrook, uh, just south. And um, part of her range is in the U.S. And she gave birth something like 200 or 300 yards over the border into the U.S. So then I had to get all the special permission. I had to drive eight hours from Kelowna to go find oh, this geez. den. I had to get Montana wildlife biologists to drive up and meet me to go on a logging road. And it's like, I can see the border, but I yeah, technically yeah, yeah. can't cross it. Yeah, no, <laughs> I just, yeah, it's a little more than technically you can't cross it. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Up, so it's a lot of work. News. Yeah, once they end up on the other side, it's a lot harder for us to get the data from them. I mean, yeah, like I say, I did go to that den. Um, they didn't make it. The kittens weren't there. They were consumed by something. But uh, it was still good mm -hmm. data to collect. But it was a mountain of paperwork for me to just go do that. So yeah. whenever they go south, I'm a little disappointed because then I can't go to too many of their kills anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's, wow. Um so one of the one of the questions I wanted to answer. Um, so actually, first before I get to that, I want to go back to something you said because this is an education piece. I think for people listening, you talked about, and I think you've had more than one cat in your study that you've confirmed a cause of death being rodenticides. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've had two suspected where they had okay. they definitely had rodenticide in their system. Yes. Okay. Now. I've come across this before. I know it's an issue in California. Um, this is where people on hobby farms and residents are putting out rat poisons 
those blocks that you get at your farm and feed supply places, the rodents are eating them and the cats are consuming the rodents in and around settled areas. And if they get enough of it uh, or it bioaccumulates in them, I believe it attacks the liver. Um, it's killing, potentially killing animals. And I think they have confirmed uh you know, it as the cause of death in California and one of the, the papers I read, um, these little mouse and rat poisons are adding up and killing cougars. So I just wanted to leave yeah. that with people just because BC now has the ban on rodenticides that came in about two years ago. So yeah, and I think this one of the mortalities, <laughs> I'm trying to remember the other one, but one of them was in uh, Washington too, when okay. she ended up dying from it and okay. established her range, but it was around an agricultural area. And that's what we think there must've been poison out, um, for her to get that much of it in her system to die. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So they're either putting it out for gophers in farm fields or barns and haylofts and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I just, that, I just wanted to capture that cause I think that's a good educational people um, thing for people from a conservation perspective um, when it comes to poisons in the environment. So the, the the other question I wanted to get to is kind of tell me about like Hunter's role in, in your work. Um, what kind of response are you getting from them? Support, you know, are houndsmen helping you catch the cats? Like what's, what's your relationship yeah, great question. So yeah, we've had a lot of really great support from the hunting community, um, especially from the hound handler community for sure. So we contract out local hound handlers, men and women with trained dogs, and they're the ones that we pay to go out and track the cougars and we immobilize them. And we've had some really great people on our team support us to do this work and they really know what they're doing. They've really taught us a lot too. I remember my first time going out snowmobiling, looking for cougar tracks and my colleague and I were wondering how come we're so bad at this how come we never find the cougar tracks and the hound handlers are out doing it and finding cat tracks easily um, because they've been doing it for years and yeah, they had a lot of yeah. expertise to share with us so we've learned so much from them and we couldn't do this work without them so we really have a strong partnership with that group and then really just to some of the hunting groups like BCWF um, have been huge support for us as well um, they've hosted me on their webinars to share the research and funded part of our research research as well. So we've had some really great work collaborating with the hunting community. And we've even had hunter uh, clubs and associations donate, donate cameras to us, funds, um, support our work, um, and then go out in the field and help us investigate kill sites too. So that's been really great. I think that one of the things I'm most grateful for on this research is just the wonderful community of people behind it. And I'm just one person, you know, crunching numbers um, and trying to keep things organized, really. But there's a mountain of people out there who've been helping assist in collecting all of this data. And collaring 51 cougars is more than we ever dreamed of. And it was only really possible because of all the great people we work with. Um, so really, we're all very proud on this team of uh, what we've gotten in terms of the data for cougar populations. It's more than we expected, for sure. Um, so yeah, definitely a huge role that that community plays uh, in our work yeah yeah oh cool i i know what you mean about their experience and the tracks i've been out a few times with an experienced cat hunter and it's like you know you're driving the roads and there's all types of animals crossing and it's just sort of you're like oh and he's a deer 
and you're like, ah, uh, no, it's elk. And you're like, ah, uh, and he's like, I think the only, and so what he ended up saying was in the snow, cats don't drag their feet. They're like, they post hole up, over, down, up, over, down, kind of like the big snow walkers on, uh, on Star Wars, like up, down, up, down. And the only thing that fooled them, he stopped and backed up was a moose because they're so big they're actually post holing and they're not they're not dragging their legs so it's just little yeah. little things like that so um if it gets yeah. to bob bobcats i need to spend more time with them because it's like <laughs> i cannot pick out a bobcat track is that a little is that a little tiny coyote track or a fox track or a bobcat <laughs> I just, yeah, they really, they do have quite the eye and the amount of detail you don't realize when you first get into looking for cougar tracks, you know, what you're really looking for. And like you say, you're looking for no drag marks. And uh, I'm fascinated too when they can tell males and females apart from the tracks, you know, oh, this one has almond shaped toes. That's a female. Males are more round. And, you know, that's how you can tell the difference, not just the size and the stride length, but just the toe pattern. Um, when it's fresh in the snow. And so, yeah, I've learned a lot from uh, the hound handlers, what kind of habitat times a year. They'll tell us where they think certain cougars cross in different areas and like what they've observed from following mm. tracks. So, yeah, we've definitely, um, yeah, I feel like I get excited finding cougar tracks when I go out. When I first started, I thought, am I ever going to be good at this? I seem, <laughs> seem to drive right past the cougar tracks and not notice them. But uh, uh, now, you know, when I go out, we're going so slow. We're scanning everything and we'll see snowed in tracks. And we know it's a cougar. Um, and it seems like before that's something we would never look at, you know, oh, like that's three days old. But if we follow it out for long enough, it'll freshen up. So yeah, we spent yeah. a lot of time looking for tracks to do this work for sure. <laughs> oh, cool. I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've always said, you know, that, you know, hound, hound hunting for cougars is controversial, um, you know, with, with some people, but I, I just love to always highlight the role um, that houndsmen play in conservation projects of the big cats in North America, um, the big and the small cats and for the work that you do. Cause you know, really it's that expertise, which is multi-generational and dogs that are, have been genetically created to do exactly this one thing that actually becomes so important to science. You know, yeah, and, it absolutely and that, is. that knowledge comes from hunting and then it's being, you get, like yourself, you're collaborating with hunters to actually answer bigger questions about, about these species. So I, I just love to, you know, point that out about people because, um, they have big hearts, <laughs> uh, they, they love do. the dogs and they love these cats. They do. And I think that's one thing too. I mean, across the board, everybody we work with, they're very passionate about cougars and they all want to learn. So that's something we really appreciate is, you know, people have their own hypotheses and ideas and how the cougars are moving on the landscape and what they're doing. But all of the folks that we've worked with are really open to the science. And they've even told us, you know, they've learned something too, working with us and getting all this data and hearing about some of these trends that we're finding and um, some of the things they thought were how the world works for cougars weren't exactly 
how it happens, you know, like the wolves pushing cougars off kills. Like we're really not seeing a lot of that here and it may happen in other places. Right. So there's uh, things that we're teaching each other along the way. Um, but like you say, they have big hearts. They show a lot of interest in the research and ask good questions and really support the science. So that's something that I'm super grateful for, you know, mm, working with really good win. people. Yeah. And these people care more than a lot of folks do about um, the welfare of the cougar population. You know, they really want to see lots of cougars out there. They want it to be sustainable um, and continue to have cougars on the landscape. So that's something that is really cool um, to see in the groups that we work with. No, that's fantastic. So leave us with a tidbit of something you've seen over the course of your research here where you're just like, this is something I didn't expect um, to find in the cougar world. Um, what, what would, what was something, what's something that really stands out where everybody's like, Oh my God, who would have ever thought, or we didn't know. Uh, that's a good question. I feel like like I've kind of given lots of little stories along this interview, but <laughs> it's just a lot of little things that surprise us. Um, I think one of the things that maybe stands out is that, so there's some documentation of cougar scavenging kills in Alberta. Um, not a lot of it in other places, but some documentation of cougars scavenging the kills of other animals. So we knew this going in, um, but like I say, I've been putting cameras up on cougar kills. And interestingly, certain times of the year, pretty much late winter when resources are, you know, it's harder for ungulates to get food. The cats are in deep snow. Uh, it's a rough time of year to be any animal out there at the end of winter. And we would get uncollared cougars coming in and scavenging our collared cougars kills. Some of them we suspected were related. So we had a collared male that was two and we thought, okay, this must be his mom. They're still together, not a mate. Um, but he was too young. He hadn't dispersed yet. And we caught, captured his dispersal afterwards. We thought this is his mom, but he's still with, even though he's pretty big, you know, two years old. So he was still with her, but other cougars, we had a female, kill a mule deer and she took off and then for three days a different female with two kittens camped out for three days at this mule deer and you know i'm looking at the footage that cougar's not collared and that's a female it's not her mate you know who is it why are they sharing kills like that's very interesting to me um and yeah, we know from other research that cougars, female cougars and male cougars too, don't overlap a lot. You'll get a male overlap three to five females because they're mating with all the females in their territory. But females and females don't have a lot of overlap and neither do males and males. So to see uncollared female cougars come into a different female's kill and spend a lot of time there is really interesting. We've seen this a few times um, and are, always seems to be around late winter, uh, early spring. So they don't seem to do it other times of the year. And we've had cameras out throughout the year. Um, but yeah, that's something oh, that we've documented okay. is this behavior where maybe food's limited and they're willing to go scavenge another cougar's food. Uh, there's some work in the U.S. looking at relationships between these cougars. So whether these females are related to each other, mother, daughter, sisters, um, something like that. Maybe they're more willing to share resources. Um, 
So we don't know if they're related. We are doing some genetic analysis on this project and with the government looking at relatedness between our cougars. Um, but that's really mother-daughter or father-son. Um, we don't get at siblings as much as we could, but um, yeah, it's just something interesting that we've seen on a lot of our cameras uh, certain times of the year. We weren't expecting to see very many cats coming in that were not collared. Um, very yeah, cool. I think that was pretty neat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a a, f- a few things there I've heard you you know you talk about that's kind of around this female to female dynamics in the cougar population, which is really kind of like opening up a world where we might you know be really looking at uh, you know the relationship between the the female demographic and in the cat world. That's that's super fascinating and you know is it what's what's that relationship are they dynamic like when there's low density of cats or high densities or like you said like late in the year when food resources are getting tough are they willing to break the private property rules and trespass and you know these these types of things like what what are the what are the principles that they're operating on as far as the rules of staying away from each other like that that seems like a really really fascinating uh kind of door that maybe this is opening for someone else to, to come yeah. in you <laughs> postdoc work but you know probably as well so wow yeah Absolutely. There's uh, an endless number of questions, like I say, with all these data. I just find it all fascinating. Like, they're just such interesting animals. Their behaviors Mm. are so cool. Like, the dispersal movements. I mean, we don't know a lot about dispersal in the younger age classes, even, across all cougar studies. It's so hard. One thing I have learned, I make it sound maybe like it's easy to do this, but it isn't, this kind of work. Um, But we have had very little success collaring the younger age classes. We've tried to collar the kittens that we've ear tagged when they get older, when they're a year old, to monitor where they go. And they are hard to catch. Like they are full of energy, like just teenage cougars out running the dogs. Like we cannot track them down. It is really hard. So that is something I hope in the future, maybe there's a better method of capturing um, younger age class cougars before they can disperse just to get that picture of where they go and like I said talk about barriers learn a bit more about that because like I say we've only had a handful of big movements it would be great if we could detect more of that so I hope in the future that if anyone wants to do more BC cougar stuff (laughs) um, try to collar some of these younger cougars and learn that because we've tried and um, struggled and it would be great if somebody who was good at it (laughs) could lead that study (laughs) (laughs) oh geez well Ah, oh, Siobhan, this is this was great. What a what a huge learning experience for us. Thank you so so much. Um, let folks know where they can find your project. Yeah, we have a website and we post updates on our research twice a year. So you can download the updates and read about us and contact us as well. On our website is bccougarproject.weebly.com. So you can email us on there if you have questions as well. You're trying to contact me. um, Those forms come straight to me. So you can get a hold of me if you want to reach out or have any questions as well. Okay. Awesome. We'll, we'll put those in the show notes for sure. Um, yeah, thanks. Um, hope you get some snow pretty quick so you can get out and, and, uh, get away from the computer. I know you're into data analysis and 
on on to writing your uh, writing your thesis and defending it and stuff. But um, I'm sure you're probably itching to get out of the office and get out into the field like like most like most wildlife researchers. So hopefully we get some snow here pretty quick. Yeah, me too. I certainly hope so. Um, yeah, that would be great. So if the cat, if the cat gods are listening, we're praying for snow. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. As, as are all the houndsmen. Awesome. Yeah. Curtis, take it away. Right on. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by J. Martin Taxidermy out of Kelowna, BC. I'm, uh, I'm just scrolling through instagram here i just pulled it up because i was like i think i I think i remember seeing some some cougar mounts from uh from jesse and he does he has some very nice cougar mounts he's got some life size and some rugs you guys should go check them out in the spirit of talking cougars because there's some pretty cool like i don't know if you can see that one yep but uh yeah yeah a really nice wall mount cougar kind of coming down the uh down the rocks and you should check it out. It's really cool. Anyways, for the listeners, uh, you can find that J Martin taxidermy on Instagram. He's also on Facebook and his website is jmartintaxidermy.com. He's got lots of gorgeous pictures of all the fantastic work he does. So as always, thanks to Jesse and his family for supporting us at what we do here at the Hunter Conservationist podcast. Absolutely. Thank you. So blood origins, um, the, the main, mothership brand out of the u.s led by robbie kroger have finished the film lionheart uh we actually have uh it's its own website lionheart the film and it's going to be going on uh most likely a western north american circuit it's going into um like the film festival circuit right now so uh it's an absolutely beautiful documentary that talks about uh lion hunters and houndsmen and what's in their heart and what they truly truly love so i'm thinking when it comes time to do uh, put some Canadian cities uh, on a tour for the film for a premiere, um, we should get together in Kelowna, uh, depending on where you are with your thesis and what you're on to and the timing, all of that, and, and have you come, um, have the film and your research work there and bring a group of people in that care about uh, cougar conservation and want to learn more about the folks that actually do hunt them and what truly, truly is in their heart. So uh, that's something you'd be interested in uh, in the future is kind of a little little side thing. We can uh, keep tabs on that together. Yeah, I definitely have no shortage of contacts in the area that are uh, interested. So for sure, um, keep me posted. You bet. All right, Siobhan, thanks very much for giving us your time tonight and uh, really look forward to following this research through to conclusion and, and what you actually find that you're able to say are conclusions now. So good luck on the analysis and the thesis and the defense. Look forward to uh, giving you a congratulations. All right, everybody, thanks for listening and we will see you in the next episode. 